The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Lyanda Lynn Haupt, is an eco-philosopher, naturalist, and author of six books, including Mozart's Starling and Rare Encounters with Ordinary Birds, both of which won the Washington State Book Award, and Crow Planet, Essential Wisdom from the Urban Wilderness, which won the Sigurd F. Olden Natural Writing Award. Her newest book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit, is reviewed in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Lando Lynn Hopped, welcome to Essential Conversations. I am delighted to be here, Rabbi Rami. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed this book. I mean, people who hear this will say, well, he almost always says that. Yeah, well, <laughs> but yeah, I really did. And there's so much in here that we won't be able to get to. But I think the next uh, 20 minutes to half an hour is going to be very rich for, for everyone listening. And hopefully we'll encourage them to go and get a copy of the book for themselves. So I wanted to start this way. Maybe it's just me, but I doubt it. But it seems to me that despite all the negativity shrouding our world, your book, Rooted, is deeply optimistic. I'm going to quote from the book. You write that, there's a quote, as perilous and complex as these times are, we are armed with a rare trio of tools that offers a rooted way forward, the joining of nature, spirit, and uniquely modern science. Now, I'm going to just read it one more time. As perilous and complex as these times are, we are rooted with a rare trio of tools that offers a rooted way forward, the joining of nature, spirit, and uniquely modern science. So can you unpack this for us? Tell us what these three tools are. Okay. Thank you. That is a nutshell summary of the book, sort of the the subtitle of the book in a way, Science, Nature, and Spirit. To be honest, I was surprised to hear you say that you found the book optimistic because one of the things that I drive for in the writing of this book or was striving for, and one of the things I was feeling while writing was a great deal of uncertainty And I honestly still dwell in uncertainty in terms of what is going to unfold in terms of the ecological crisis that's facing us all. But I do think that we are in a unique position. And I started thinking about it a little bit differently when the science of forest bathing began to be trendy here in the United States some years back. So I I think that most of your listeners have heard about forest bathing, but is it okay if I just do a little refresher on that? Yeah, sure. 
So in the 1980s in Japan, therapists and some healthcare practitioners began to actually prescribe walking in nature and being in the natural world for clients and patients who were suffering stress-related issues, whether anxiety or physiological issues associated with stress. And soon people in the scientific community came along and said, you know, if you're going to be prescribing this stuff, we really need evidence-based research. And so that began to come out in the 80s from Chiba University. People began to find that when we were in the natural world, our heart rate balanced, our blood pressure went down, the activity and the hemoglobin in our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain associated with emotional well-being and actually creativity, and the activation of our parasympathetic nervous system, that part of our nervous system associated with making us calm. So all these wonderful stress-reducing side effects came out of being in the natural world. And now suddenly there was that evidence that supports this conclusion now. So when that science made it to the United States, we did hear, you know, what we do best in the United States. We made it into an industry <laughs> where people could, for a fee, become forest therapists, which is lovely, bringing people out into nature, where people could pay to go on walks, uh, where they were guided through meditative pathways that would help them access their senses and calming. That was the result of that encompass those scientific results. So this is what I'm getting to. I was thinking about all of that and I thought, wow, there's this beautiful science. People were so excited about it. This was huge news. And part of me thought how wonderful that this continuity that we have with our bodies and the rest of the natural world is being validated in this way. But part of me thought was a little bit hesitant. And I thought, you know, we already knew this for millennia. Mystics and poets and earth-based indigenous cultures and children have known that we are at our healthiest and our uh, wisest and our most creative and our most you know um, embodied in our most embodied sense of wellness when we are connected to the natural world and living within that continuity. And so, that's what I wanted to explore is, is that intersection. I think that people have been aware of that sensibility, but for so many who don't know or have experienced the direct communication with the natural world or are uncomfortable with spiritual language, the science offers this sort of validation and legitimacy that is very welcome. And I want to honor that and celebrate that while at the same time saying, wow, you know, we also have this innate knowing of our human connection with nature. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me of something else you wrote in the book that seems, you'll see if you can make it fit, but it seems to be a mm -hmm. fit for me. You, you talked about, and this obviously stuck in my mind because the Bible is my a passion, but you're, you were writing in the book about the first commandment given to Moses by God in the parable of the burning bush. Mm -hmm. where God says to Moses, shed your sandals, this is the way you write it, shed mm -hmm. your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And your interpretation, I thought was just fascinating. You wrote that Moses must shed his shoes, not because the earth is holy, 
but in order for him to realize that the earth is holy, that there's something between us and the direct experience of the world around and within us that keeps us from what you were just talking about, this mystical sense of, and, and you actually referred to Thich Nhat Hanh's notion of interbeing, of the mm-hmm. interconnectedness of all things. So what do you think we have to shed in order mm-hmm. to experience this? Thank you for asking that, Rabbi Rami. That was a really important question for me because I heard Trappist brother David Steindl Rost, who you surely know, sure. it was in, in an interview with him that I heard this verb shed because so often we hear that passage translated as, you know, the burning bush told Moses to take off his shoes. Just like, you know, we had taken off when we come in the door and, you know, we don't want to get the carpet dirty. But he pointed out that this verb, that the original verb is far more radical. Shed is to cast off. It speaks to, you know, transformative moments, the great transitions of animals. You know, deers shed their antlers. Antlers, we, when we find them, they're just these dead things. But in actuality, when they're on the deer, they're an organ. They're innervated. They are a living thing. Snakes shed their skin. Animals slough their fur. Honestly, I thought, what does this mean? And I wrote it in, I wrote it at the top of a page of my notebook. What do we shed? So I was glad you asked me that because I thought about it a lot. And I think in this time that requires us to be of service to an earth in crisis, we shed a sense of otherness that when our feet are bound in shoes sometimes, which is wonderful for comfort and for safety and for beauty sometimes. But when we take off our shoes, we let that go. We shed our otherness, our separateness from the world, our elevation, our pretense. We shed a certain kind of beauty, a certain kind of comfort. I would say the certainty of comfort. We let all things, all of these things go in order to become in deeper relationship. And as you say, to recognize not just that we're not doing this, we're not seeking this deeper contact because the ground is holy, though it is, but to come into the deepest recognition that we can, that we are always standing on holy ground. Yeah, there, there's this necessity in, I would say, all authentic spirituality of a stripping away mm-hmm. of everything that's keeping us from having this experience, as opposed to having to find something we lack. The real work is to shed what's in the way of what we already we already have. One of the ways we can practice shedding, I think this is safe to say, is through voluntary solitude. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm thinking about all these, all the people I know who are in involuntary solitude because of COVID-19, and they're just coming out of that solitude. Some of, of the people I know who have gone through this have found the experience to be deeply spiritual in the sense that you were just talking, that somehow not having to put on the masks, I'm obviously being playing with the word here, but the the, the social masks, right? You can put on your COVID masks, but you don't have to put on the various social masks because you're not out in social settings, that not having to put those on is, in a sense, the same as taking the sandals off or shedding the sandals. And they found that solitude a very enriching experience. Mm -hmm. Now that we can go back 
or many of us, you know, once you get vaccinated, you can go back. I think a lot of the people that I've talked to are just racing away from solitude <laughs> and they just want to put those masks on because they've had it. And you write that while solitude is vital to our sanity, but you say that seeking that kind of that path to sanity through solitude takes us into what you call, and this is a quote, a teeming, shivering anxiety, close quote. <laughs> and I'm wondering, A, why that might be, and if that anxiety is what keeps us from seeking solitude as an ongoing practice. I mean, I don't mean isolating, you know, you're not becoming a hermit, but but making the seeking of solitude a regular part of your spiritual life. Is it that anxiety? And if it is, what do you do with it when it comes? I think you make an important distinction, Rabbi Rami, about voluntarily choosing solitude because prisoners, you know, are are isolated. And some people, I mean, even in during the pandemic, the isolation and solitude that many of us experienced was in a way voluntary because we could pick up the phone and we could find community in different ways. So when we look at solitude in the positive spiritual sense, we're looking at choosing it or or when it's a cultural practice of certain spiritual traditions, a quest or a time in wilderness or desert. And that's something we don't get to do very often. And so you're right, we create, we create and seek our own times of solitude for a different kind of sustenance. And studies show that 85% of us are longing for more solitude, but at the same time, it's one of our greatest fears. <laughs> And I experienced that myself. So I seek solitude. It's one of my regular um, spiritual practices is, is um, extended periods of time away. And I always fall into a period of really hard anxiety. And there are studies that show that when we are in solitude, a lot of the, I mean, obviously the distractions of our cell phones fall away, the distractions of uh, mindless conversation and everyday tasks. But one of the other things that falls away is our sense of being seen by others. Psychiatrists call this the spotlight effect, where we become very aware of what we say and what we do and how we present. And that's magnified even more now when we have social media, where we're supposed to curate our lives in a way that makes them look really good. And when all that falls away, um, a lot of things happen. Um, we recall, we let these sort of self-referential processes go. And so we recall memories and emotional states and feelings. And we have a lot more expansive time to dwell in and, and kind of evaluate sensory input. And it makes us nutty and it's hard. It turns out there's so much going on in our brain that we do not allow to surface that does not have the space to surface in the busyness and the interactions of our everyday lives. So that's hard. It creates anxiety. It creates what Emily Dickinson, a famous uh, solitary, called the divine insanity. And she capitalized both words. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. So when, when you experience that, what advice do you have for people to, to move through it or at least sit with it? Well, it's temporary, for one thing. It's something that I think we, we pass through because solitude is a shock to our system. <laughs> and for a while, we just, we're just so happy. I think we're alone. Everything's quiet. We can uh, watch the birds. But then that anxiety sets in. Um, so I, do, I personally do a couple of things. I talk myself down. I remind myself that I've been through it before. I remind myself that it passes. And I remind myself that I came to wherever I'm seeking solitude, whether it's an hour in my study or several days in the wilderness, I I remind myself that I came there on purpose, that I came there to pass through something and here I am passing through it. And although it feels scary that I'm safe and that's basically it. And then I let it happen. Hmm. I think that we rush so often to grasp we grasp after stillness and tranquility. <laughs> uh, and I know that we, are, we seek that in so many spiritual practices, but there's a sense in which that can, and uh, um, Joanna Macy said this, that she said that this can become a kind of spiritual trap where we think that one state of being is higher than another. And so we grasp after that. It's just another form of grasping when sometimes we're just anxious and Oftentimes we, we, we rush to say things are dark right now. Things are hard right now. I'm anxious right now. And that's okay. But sometimes I just want to leave, leave that and that's okay part off. To say sometimes right, right. just anxious, just there. Well, I mean, feelings aren't permanent. Right. right? They're, they're always in transition. So if you wait long enough, you'll feel something else. <laughs> Might not be any better, but it's at least something else. But I will add that after periods of solitude, I always find I have never emerged without passing through that time of anxiety and coming into a kind of stillness and a bareness that has, uh, that informs my life in a way that I find meaningful and positive. Well, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to use the the notion of bareness, Mm -hmm. I mean, that takes you back to shedding your sandals, right? It's that nakedness. Uh, I think Richard Rohr talks about the naked now, you know, and and it's that kind of vulnerability, which turns out to be maybe our ultimate strength, uh, just being without defenses. In your writing about solitude, you talk about the work of Dr. Marcus Reichley, and I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about his work and how that reinforces your own understanding of solitude. Some of what I was just referring to comes from Dr. Reichley's work. And one of the things that I discovered in his work, which was a surprise, is something that we always hear over and over again, that we're just using a very small part of our brain. Have you heard that? They just say that we have our oh, brains. I know it's so... true about me. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, it sounds like we have so much brain capacity that we're, that we're not engaging. And what uh, Dr. Reichley's research showed in the 90s Washington University, is that actually our brains are very active. They're functioning at about 95% all the time. And so, and part of that is the social interaction and the kind of pretense 
that we've been talking about and the sort of maintenance of a social image. And so he says, when all of those things drop away in solitude, our brainscape kind of is allowed to roam free. And then we do have that kind of naked space. And so that's what leads to just that, that very unsettled, unfamiliar sense of what you, your word was vulnerability. And I thought that was a a lovely word. And that's one of the many things that his research has brought to light. In in the gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing, I hadn't thought about this till just now, but Jesus says something like, do not cease seeking until you find. And when you find, you will be troubled. Mm. And when you're troubled, you will reign over all is I think that one, maybe Marvin Meyer's translation, but it's the mm-hmm. first part. Don't stop seeking until you find. And when you find, you will be troubled. And maybe what, what he's talking about is we want either that canned notion of tranquility or bliss, mm-hmm. or we, we don't really want to take, or maybe we do take our sandals off, but we you know <laughs> buy it buy another pair right away, you know, and, and, you know, that look a little nicer or something for an Instagram photo, but we're not necessarily desiring that kind of, of Richard Rohr naked now moment. And that's why we are troubled. And if we can move through that, we find this incredible sense of power, not power mm-hmm. over, but power with in that Thich Nhat Hanh sense of, of, you know, we're interconnected interbeing. I wonder if you have this, you, you refer to what I'm calling sort of a parallel to solitude, but maybe it's actually just part of the same thing. You, you call the reader to return to a fruitful darkness. That's your phrase, return to a fruitful darkness. And I'm wondering if that too is part of, of what you're talking about, that you know, one aspect is solitude and this other aspect is darkness, both of which are anxiety producing for lots of people because we tend to equate darkness with evil. Mm-hmm. So, but you give us a different understanding of that. So, so how do you understand this notion of fruitful darkness? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to acknowledge that I got that pairing of words from Roshi Joan Halifax's book by that name, Fruitful Darkness. And I love those words together. One of the things that I did in writing this book, uh, Rabbi Rami, is I chose not to use the metaphor of darkness to be equated with evil or trouble or anything bad, which we do over and over. We hear it in our, you know, our, our political punditry or even just our everyday conversation. You know, how are you doing? It's kind of a dark time, right? And I was so surprised at how difficult it was to excise that language from my writing. I wrote, I plopped it in over and over again, and I crossed it out over and over again. And I hope I got all of them. But in our cultural mythology, in our hymns, in our books, over and over again, darkness is equated with evil. And I just thought, wow, if that's true, we're in a lot of trouble because 90% of life on this planet dwells in complete darkness, uh, the depths of the sea where light cannot penetrate, beneath the earth, it's where the decomposers, both animal and fungal, are toiling to return death to life. That's the great spinning of life. And also in darkness, again, we come back to that idea of shedding. We, our appearance doesn't matter. Our, um, we, we don't have 
the bearings that we have in daylight. And so there's this essential and yet somehow comforting unsettledness. I mean, darkness gives us uh, bad dreams, but also gives us beautiful dreams. It gives us the space in which we find our sweet sleep. It gives us starlight. I just think that I want to, one of the things I wanted to do with this book and that chapter was one of the pivotal ways of doing it was to dismantle a lot of dualities, you know, human and nature being one of them, the separation of human culture from wild nature, which is an an impossible uh, separation. And that somehow the duality of good and evil being equated with dark and light and, and others. But that was the starting point. Yeah, I mean, in, in Genesis, just to go back, because you, you referenced it earlier, in Genesis, in the opening line of creation, darkness precedes light. Darkness mm-hmm. is is the darkness of the womb. You know, you, you, we get the notion of the Black Madonna, um, who not just Mary as the mother of Jesus, but the, uh, the Virgin as Theotokos, the mother mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. And she's, in many cases, you know, she's Black. Uh, the woman in Song of Songs tells us she's black. Most translators say, I'm black, but beautiful. But that that's not necessarily what the Hebrew says. I'm black and beautiful. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there's a beauty to the blackness, a fruitfulness to the darkness, all, all of that. So I really appreciated the way you led us through that in, in the book, as well as just a moment ago, to, to really challenge our cultural biases around this notion of, of darkness. So we are running out of time. So I want to close. I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, so you're ready to do this. I love the way the book Rooted closes. And if it's okay with you, I'd like you to read the last couple of, the last few paragraphs of the book. Thank you. My grown-up vision of earthen grace remains influenced by a line from the creed I recited weekly as a child at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in the mercurial green Pacific Northwest. I believe in the seen and the unseen. I remember standing there like a tree amidst the pews, not knowing the science yet, but knowing something true. The seen. My arms and hair flew into the air as branches, clothed with mosses and lichens, crawling with shiny black beetles, covered with birds, rustling in the slightest breeze, wet sometimes with rain, with dewfall. And the unseen. Roots shot through the soles of my patent leather Mary Janes and into the dark earth, where they knit with other roots, rounded ancient stones, wove with worms and grubs and bodies of the furred and feathered returning to soil, all mingling mercilessly, gloriously, and always. All shall be well in whatever tangled, unknowable, difficult, beautiful way that wellness unfolds. Our lives are irrevocably entwined with this unfurling. Though we can't know exactly where we are going or what will happen, still we journey together by choice and in grace, foot by foot, upon our troubled and beloved earth. Return, return, return. Our guest today, Leanda Lynn Haupt, is the author of Rooted, 
Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. Kate Madden Lee reviews the book in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Lyanda's work on her website, lyandalynnhopt.com. And Lyanda, this was really fabulous. I mean, I hope I hope this motivates a bunch of people to get into solitude and, and to try out the, the fruitful darkness and, and not be afraid of all of that and to pick up a copy uh, of your book and read it. So thank you very much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. It was such a pleasure to be here with you. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, Don't take your dreams lying down.